Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 98. I hope everybody's having a good week out there. I hope everybody's staying safe and healthy, getting lots of good practice time in. We have a fantastic episode for you today. I am going to be joined by the great Mark Damien after uh, a message from our sponsor. Mark is just a fantastic drummer, uh, plays in a couple of different scenarios. He's also a wonderful engineer, producer, and composer. So we're going to be joined by him right after this message from Los Cabo Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabo Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabo Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by Mark Damien uh, here in just a second. Mark uh, spends his time playing with uh, and producing Josie Pace and also with uh, Laith Alsadi. Um, Laith, of course, was a finalist on season 10 of The Voice, um, and Mark does all sorts of engineering, producing, composing for TV and film. Uh, just got a lot of really cool stuff going on. Originally a native of Detroit, he now makes his home in Los Angeles. And it sure was good to get him on the show. And I, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. He has so much great advice and insights to offer. So please help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle, Mark Damien. Hey, good evening, Mark. How's it going, brother? I'm doing well. How are you, Jamie? Man, um, I cannot complain too much. Uh, the The world is still at a standstill, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> other than that, things Just are things yeah. are good. Um, now, are you in LA currently? 
I am. I am in specifically Sherman Oaks. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you know the layout of the land out here very well, but uh, I'm on the uh, the opposite end of or opposite side of the Hollywood Hills in comparison to Hollywood and, and Los Angeles proper. Yeah, for sure, man. The the Oaks area. Uh, I've been through mm-hmm. there a time or two. Um, so now you guys are under like a complete statewide lockdown right now. So I'm I'm assuming uh, hopefully uh, you you have all the tools you need to shed and uh, you know sticks and a practice <laughs> pad and all that good stuff, right? Well, I I do, and I've been you know I have uh, my studio is in North Hollywood, small uh, humble studio down there, just down the street, about 15 minutes, uh, not even. And, you know, for the last couple of weeks, I've just been going from the apartment to the studio back and forth and, and not much in between, maybe a grocery store if I have a couple hours, which yeah. we all have a couple hours at this point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, man. yeah, standing in line there. But, uh, yeah, and, and in light of, like, the most recent news, I, I know that I just got a text message from mom back in Michigan saying, Hey, I heard the news that you guys are on, like, super lockdown now, so I hope you have everything you need, just like you just asked. Gosh, I haven't turned on the news yet today, but I'm scared to. So, well, uh, yeah, there's that. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, man, it's just so weird and interesting. And, and you know, I mean, as you do as well, I have so many friends that are, you know, tours canceled, sessions canceled. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, you, you know, it's it's times like these that you're like, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but at some point you're like, gosh, you know, I'm glad I know how to do some graphic design or some web coding or or something to get a little bit of income coming in. Because if you're, you know, all music all the time, this is, this is a bad time for, for music folks. It is a bad time for that sort of thing. And yeah, we're, we're all kind of sitting, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is, you know every, where everybody's at. They're, they're on their devices. You know, this is the only way that we're able to kind of be social right now is, is via, you know, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all that stuff. So I think like a lot of other musicians, I'm bulking up the content, you know, and, um, and, and trying to, uh, I'm going through, you know, I do what a lot of drummers do and we take our GoPros with us on, on the, on the road and we, we shoot video from the, you know, uh, drummer point of view. And, uh, I'm, I'm going through a lot of, uh, of video and finding, you know, whether it's drum solos or just cool parts of the shows from shows. I, I barely remember that I did last summer <laughs> and then finally got an opportunity to sit down and go through all the, uh, all the footage and, you know, doing my posts. And, um, you know, it's funny. I, I made a post the other day about, Hey, um, you know, I, I, I try not to crack jokes because it's not, uh, it, it's a pretty serious thing with what's going on in me and, you know, globally right now. But, uh, I, I, I did make a, 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 a blast about, um, hey, I'm just, you know, chilling in the studio here. I have a, uh, antivirus, uh, uh, drum studio discount right now if you need any tracks done for one of your songs. <laughs> So I actually did get a lot of people that uh, that are, you know, doing the music thing in their home studios that are saying, yes, I need drum tracks. So 
my studio time has, has increased yeah. uh, in light of all of this stuff. And um, now, now I'm hoping this week I can make it to the studio unless we're on complete lockdown and I can't even make it down the, the down the street 15 minutes away from here. Um, but uh, yeah, that, uh, that is an important thing to have something else going on that you can do from home. Um, but that's not the case for a lot of people, you know, yeah. that's, that's, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing how this all shakes out at the end of uh this, uh, you know, lockdown. Well, I mean, I think, you know, two things that I would add on to that is, you know, number one, there's going to be a lot of pent up demand. No doubt about it. Once I want to be on stage, you know, like within the first week that everybody's able to go out because it's going to be one rocking crowd. I can tell you that much. Yeah, for sure, man. They're going to be ready for it. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, I was joking around with, with a, a friend and I said, you know, be prepared to stand in line six hours to get movie tickets when this is over. I mean, because you can't miss things unless they go away. And, you know, the the other thing that I would add um, to that, you know, I thought about, you know, I I do a lot of sessions, um, you know, at, at a buddy's studio whenever he needs a drummer. He does a lot of demo work, singer, songwriter kind of stuff. And if they need a, if they need a drummer, I'm typically the first guy he calls, which is always nice. That's Um, a good position to be in. Yeah. But you know, he's kind of shut down right now. So I thought, well, you know, I've got the drum shuffle studios, you know, I I can do tracks from the house. I've got a drum kit here. And then I started thinking through it and you know, you, you get kind of stupid and you, you go, well, but you know, Steve Gadd is doing this right now. He, (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, you know, guy, guys like Mark Damien are doing this right now. Um, <laughs> you, I don't know that I have a whole lot to offer beyond that. So I just decided I was like, okay, nobody's on tour right now. Nobody's too busy to talk to me. I'm just going to record all the interviews I possibly can over the next three weeks. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we all have time right now. And that's, that's the, uh, the nice thing. And that's why I've been kind of firing off some emails, making new connections such as yourself. Yeah. And, uh, it introduced me to your, your podcast and I was able to check out some of the, uh, previous, uh, interviews and, and I was listening to the Carl Banks one recently. I think it's the most recent one that you posted. Yeah. And what, by the way, what, what a regal name, you know, Carlton <laughs> Banks. I know. And he's got this great English accent and I'm listening. I'm like, wow, this is, this is a great interview. If you, if I would have went, it came in like midway to the interview, I would have thought you were talking like Bob Geldof or something because <laughs> his, his accent was very, very similar. And, uh, I just recently listened to a podcast with Bob Geldof and so very, very good interview, by the way. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Car- Carlton's a good, uh, good young man and he's got a lot of cool stuff going on. And, you know, I just thought it was interesting that he went from, you know, slogging it out on tours to, Hey, I, I, I'm going to pivot. I don't want to be on the road 200 nights a year. I'm going to start a drumstick sure. company. So we, so we started an easy thing, like starting a drumstick company. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you know what? It's not ambitious at all. Yeah. But I mean, his passion is, uh, you know, self-evident and, you know, he's getting it done. So more power to him. But 
Well, let's let's introduce you to the drum shuffle crowd. Um, you know, I know that you're originally from Michigan. I I'm I want to say Detroit, but I, I'm not a hundred outside of Detroit specifically. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised about I don't know 25, 30 minutes outside of uh, Detroit. So in farm country. Okay. Okay. So not an inner city kid then. <laughs> um, right. Well, you know, during that time, the seventies and eighties, nobody lived downtown Detroit. It was a, it was a city built for a couple million that everybody left in the late sixties. If you know your Detroit history. Yeah. Um, and you know, so everybody that, that grew up in quote unquote, the Detroit area, uh, in the late seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, when I grew up, um, that's your story. You were in the suburbs of Detroit, not Detroit proper. Um, now it's, it's thankfully, uh, a bit, a different story. Uh, there's a lot of ever since, I don't know, early two thousands when they started really doing some heavy renovation, um, and, and just like basically bulldozing complete neighborhoods that were abandoned and starting over. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's become a different city over the last 20 years. That's for sure. But yeah, my story is I was, uh, born and raised in, in, uh, Southeast Michigan. Carlton was the small town <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, that I was born in. And, um, yeah, I, I started playing drums at a very early age because my parents exposed me to, uh, uh, they like to go to dances and they like to, you know, um, experience the, uh, the native, uh, music of Poland. My dad's from Poland originally. And, um, you know, so they would go to these dances and they would take me along as a, as a little tyke. And I would sit behind the drummer and just be captivated for however many hours that this dance would go on and, uh, occasionally get a pair of drumsticks to take home with me. And that's where it really all started. That's fantastic. Now, so presumably as a young lad, as you say, you know, you started saying, hey, uh, time for me to get a drum set, you know, <laughs> and, and aggravating mom and dad. Did you start out? Did you start out on just a snare or did they buy you a kit? You know, well, I started out on whatever I could put together to, to <laughs> you know, build a makeshift drum kit. Of which, course. You know, I, I always find it interesting when people say pots and pans. That was the last thing on my list. I didn't want pots and pans because it didn't have the right sound. <laughs> Even yeah. at a very early age, yeah. I had this whole like, well, this one, you know, I didn't know what any of these things were called yet, but the snare drum was completely captivating to me because of, of you know, Obviously, it has a lot more going on in terms of its construction. You know, there's these buzzy things on the bottom that made this certain, you know, thing happen, the sound. And so I was very adamant, even as a three or four year old kid of like, you know, this suitcase kind of sounds like a floor tom. So I'm going to put this here <laughs> right. and I'm going to put, you know, I, you know, and, and it just kind of progressed from there. Yeah, that's and, cool. And uh, the drum kit, the drum kit came kind of a little bit later when probably my parents were tired of me destroying objects around the house. They're like, okay, we got to get this kid something that's supposed to be struck by a drumstick. So, um, you know, it, it was the, you know, the quintessential toy drum kit that evolved into the second toy drum kit that didn't have paper heads that I could shred, you know, literally. Yeah. And, uh, and then from there, I think, you know, probably around eight or nine is when I got, uh, the step up. I got an, an actual kit that was, uh, 
you know, I think it was a TKO percussion. Don't know if they're still in business, but there's a shout out to TKO percussion. I doubt they are, but they were, uh, that, that was the kit that I had. And it was a Ringo style kit, you know, kick, snare, back tom. I don't even think it came with a floor tom. I think I had to add that later. Okay. Um, which was a real treat when you started adding things on because it didn't come with a hi hat either. And that was the other thing that I'm like, oh man. This is where, where a lot of stuff's happening and very expressive. You could use a pedal and, and make all these different sounds. And, uh, but that came later. I started taking lessons around eight, nine when I, you know, I started asking a lot of questions because I had been playing from age three to about that time, eight or nine, just putting cassettes in, in, in the boom box and playing along. And I was playing by feel and by ear. And, uh, then I'm like, Hey, there's a right way to do this. And I want to know what it is. And I asked for lessons. And that's when, well, I guess when you start asking your parents for lessons, they, they, they're like, okay, that's when you get the real equipment. Yeah. That's when you get, uh, at least as long as I've been, you know, beaten on these, these toy drum kits, when I'm finally asking for lessons, that's when they got a little bit more serious and got me some better gear. And, um, it was a lot of time spent on the snare drum. And that's how I teach to this day is, you know, I try to put my newer students that are just starting out because I teach a lot of different levels, whether you're, you know, uh, experienced and just want to freshen things up or you're intermediate level, whatever. But a lot of beginners come to me and I'm like, don't even look at the rest of the kit. We're going to spend a lot of time on this centerpiece here called the snare drum. And uh, that's what I did. I learned the rudiments, you know, where yeah. else do you start? You yeah. Know, and then learn to read. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, you said you took lessons. Um, you know, do you want to give a shout out to any of those old drum teachers? I mean, were you, I mean, was it? I love my old drum teachers. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Griffith was my first instructor. My first and my very last private instructor were the two most influential for me. Jerry Griffith at Ray's Music. Uh, Ray's Music in Monroe, Michigan is long gone. I, I, I don't know that they're, uh, yeah, I, I know for a fact, actually, that they've been closed down for a while. Um, probably around the time that Sam Ash and, and Guitar Center started ruling the world in terms of big box retail and all that. But um, uh, Steve Whitford, also in Monroe, Michigan, was uh, my last uh, private instructor uh, from from my youth. Anyway, I, I took I still take lessons when I can every now and then. The last person that I took lessons from was uh, Chris Coleman. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's, there's some names to drop. But um, yeah, that wasn't until I moved to LA. But I think that, that no matter what, I mean, Neil was taking lessons. And when he had, you know, 25, 30 years of great records and an amazing career, he was still taking lessons, Peter Erskine and Freddie Gruber and, and all that stuff. So I don't think that you ever get to a point where you, you think you know everything. You know, because I think the more that you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know. And that's where you, your heart starts beating a little faster. Like, oh, man, I really got to, you know, buckle down here. And, and as soon as you feel comfortable, try to feel uncomfortable. Go go back in and, and figure out some stuff that you don't know and you, you don't feel comfortable playing, you know. Yeah, well, so, yeah, I, those those early instructors were great. 
I, I laugh when you say get uncomfortable, you know, because, you know, the older I get, the more uncomfortable I get with everything, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, yeah. you'll, you'll just be playing some simple shuffle groove and you'll go, wow, am I, you know, am I subdividing the, the ghost notes the right way? You know, does it feel oh, good? Oh man. I mean, you just, you get, get in your started own- on those shuffles, man. Yeah. yeah. That's where you really separate the, the men from the boys on the, on the drum kit is those shuffles. Yeah. I mean, so you just start, you know, getting in your own head and, and to your point, no matter how long you've been doing it, go see somebody that can help you with mechanics that can help you with your reading ability. It's, it's so important. It really is. Um, so that's, that's why I went to Chris. I mean, Chris was doing, I mean, those gospel chops are fierce. And when I moved to LA, uh, that was the thing. Everybody was getting hired that could play that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, I, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't my style of play and it's still not, but I'm just like, okay, who's the guy in town teaching that stuff? And, and Chris's name came up and Chris is another fellow Michigander. He's from the Saginaw area originally. Yeah. And, uh, and then came out here and he, he was teaching at the time in Burbank, which I, I'm sure he still is. Um, but it was very, and now I didn't sit there and study with him for months or years or anything like that. But what I'm talking about, because as you know, when you get older, life happens and you're, you're not able to put the time and effort, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the right way of putting it. You just have a lot going on in your life. You have gigs, you have sessions, you have stuff going on to where, weekly lessons and then a practice regimen on top of that for, for months and months on end is maybe not, you know, uh, possible. So you do what you can. And what I was able to do was just get a different perspective and, and, uh, a different way of looking at some things drum wise from Chris that, that really helped out. Um, and yeah, the, the, the other person that I got, uh, their number early on when I moved to LA and I haven't uh, taken them up on it yet, uh, because, and now being out in LA for long enough, you, you don't really get starstruck because you're just kind of out here and you're around it all the time and you run into, uh, people all the time that, that are very successful in their field and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I haven't called this guy because I think that I would be just starstruck every, every time I'd meet up with him. And that's Steve Peroni. Oh, he is yeah. one of my top five cats. And like, I, I just can't imagine going to the guy's house and not being giddy. Uh, you know, and, and everything that he's trying to teach me is going to fly right over my head because I'm just like, Oh my God, I'm at Steve Peroni's <laughs> house, you know, learning drums. Yeah. So I don't know if it would be effective, but it would be pretty fun. Yeah. I, I mean, that would be a dream come true for me. Um, you know, of course the, <laughs> I'll tell you a real quick story, but the great, Mike, it, yeah. the, the great Mike Johnston, you know, of Mike's lessons.com. I had him on the show and he said, you know, when I was younger, I was in a band and, you know, we had a record deal and we were in the studio trying to cut tracks. And I was just like, look at me, you know, I, you know, (laughs) he said, I had no idea what playing for the song even meant. So the label set him down with Steve Ferroni and Ferroni was (laughs) like, listen to the track and said, well, what did you play? And so Johnston showed him what he was playing. And Ferroni, he said, Ferroni literally like face palmed. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so he sat down and said, this is what I would have played for this song. 
And Joss, oh my gosh, I would wither away like a uh, like a dying plant. Like that. that, This already sounds terrible. (laughs) Yeah, and and Johnston was like, I was like, man, that's boring. There's nothing going on there. You know, he was like, I just didn't even know. But um, you know, Ferroni is just. I, I mean. I, I don't even know how well, to you know say how, it. You know how Peroni got the got the Heartbreakers gig, right? I, I like, that's the infamous story. He played the most what what would what what Mike would classify as the most boring drum part of all time <laughs> for uh, uh, Tom Petty song. Uh, and I don't know if this is the right uh, name for the song, but you don't know how it feels. You know oh, the track? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nineties, yeah. If you listen, go back and listen to this after the conversation that we're having, because listen to the drum part. Uh, the story that I got is that uh, Froney went in as a session guy and played, boom, boom, got, boom, boom, got, you know, just a basic groove, hi-hat, kick, and snare. There's not a crash cymbal to transition into the chorus or out of the chorus or the, there's no drum fill. That's all he did. Yeah. He did it one take, and Tom's on the other side of the glass saying, man, you are hired. <laughs> That's all I've ever wanted out of a drummer. Is just, and, and, and he became a heartbreaker for, you know, as, as long as, you know, you know, Tom was around. Yeah, well, and, uh, he was in the band the story, 20, 20 years. I mean, yeah. you know. Um, that song came out in what 92 or something like that yeah something like that but i mean if you listen to ferroni stuff even with like average white band you know i mean it wasn't like he was he wasn't a blazing chop chop machine or anything you know and that's what i like about him you know i didn't discover uh you know because i was born in 77 um by 86 is when I realized who he was and, and he came in to replace Roger Taylor and Duran Duran of all places. You know, here's a guy that played with Clapton and average white band. And I'm listening to all my sister's cassettes from, from Duran and, and Depeche Mode. And I have a big, you know, electronic rock kind of background uh, from that. But I was a huge Durani and still am. And that's where I discovered Steve Ferroni. And like any good musician, you not only look at what their current project is, uh, you look at what they did in the past. You dig into the history. And I'm like, wow, this guy is, is, is from a serious, you know, background. And if you listen to that, you know, uh, say what you will about Duran, but that, that notorious album, you know, you got Nile Rogers producing that record. You got Warren Cucurullo and and Steve Ferroni and some heavy hitters. Great horn section on that record, and and Steve's drumming is just just what it needs to be. You know, yeah. it's exactly in the pocket, and that's that's when you start learning terms when you're a young kid, like pocket and what that means, and playing for the song. And what he does to the hi-hat, and you think that it's like this basic beat, and then you really put an ear on it, and you realize that he's, he's tickling that hi-hat like nobody else. It's, it's amazing what he does on a very, very subtle level that makes him, you know, who he is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable how good the guy is and, and underrated at the same time. Now, yeah. I, Obviously, he was an early influence for you. Who were, you know, who who were the other guys on the uh, the young Marks, you know, Mount Rushmore of drummers? 
Well, as I, I as I have already said, you know, I, my my first uh, big influence was, you know, I came up in the in the video era, you know, where where music videos were really just kind of replacing radio, and so you get to see what's happening as much as hear it. So I was hooked on the Duran thing early on. Um, but, and, and, you know, Tony Thompson was big for me. Um, and, uh, I discovered him because two members of Duran Duran went to form this thing called power station with Robert Palmer and, uh, Tony Thompson on drums. And I'm like, who is this Tony Thompson guy? He's got this amazing drum sound. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm researching, this is, you know, this is pre-internet, mind you. So researching the best I could. And then I figured out that he was from a band originally called Chic, you know? Yeah. So danceable drum rhythms were big for me. And I think that really taught me at an early age to be that pocket player. Um, you know, again, say what you will about disco, but... If, you, if there's something really appealing to me about filling a dance floor and keeping people there. Yeah, man. Yeah. No you know doubt. what I mean? It's yeah. like you are in control of the, of the vibe at that point and, and you're slamming, whether it's just a basic four on the floor or whatever it is to make people move. I consider that an honor to be on that side of the drum kit and, and playing for people. And, uh, I, I really love the live aspect for that reason because of that instant gratification of like you're really making people move and, and, and everybody's digging what you're doing and uh, on the same plane. But yeah, so Tony Thompson, Roger Taylor, um, Steve Peroni, uh, and then a little bit later was uh, Manu Cache, was oh, yeah. very influential. Yeah, Peter Gabriel, big fan, loved all his stuff. And then, of course, the Soul album was really, really big and probably, what, 86. Yeah. 87, somewhere around, around there. And, um, and then came, you know, Neil Peart, because that's, you know, where you go after you listen to a lot of Duran Duran, you go to the opposite end of the spectrum and start listening to, you know, heavy prog rock. Yeah. Well, <laughs> of course. Well, you know, I, what I, fi- what I find interesting is, y- you know, you and I are the same age and, you yeah. know, growing up in that MTV era, what I find interesting is there is a divergence amongst our contemporary drummers, right? The the folks that are the exact same age as us. I went the, you know, Motley Crue, Kiss, Aerosmith, White Snake, uh, you know, that stuff. The I, I, I liked yeah. I like the full leaded drummers, you know. Um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so I, but then there are the other folks that, you know, such as yourself, that went the more, um, you know, top 40 of that era, right? And, you know, and I'll, I'll expand on that, too, a little bit, if you don't mind, because please, my life could have went that direction very easily. And, and honestly, I did get into those, those uh, we'll call them the hair bands and the, and the rock stuff, the hard rock stuff, later on. Um but I think it was 1983 and I'm at the record store with my sister and I picked up two albums, one being quiet riot and one being Billy Joel's innocent man. <laughs> and I brought them to my mom and I said, I want these. And she said, you can only pick one. Bummer. <laughs> and which one do you think I picked? I went with Billy Joel and that's where I went. I went <laughs> to top 40 side, Yeah, you know, and it wasn't until the nineties. Cause I went into the nineties a little bit 
um, critical of what was happening in the 90s. I grew up in the 80s with this top 40 stuff and wanting to, like, I loved Huey Lewis. I loved Hall & Oates. I loved, you know, I loved the, the, the you know, uh, all that stuff to the point where I wanted it to continue <laughs> yeah, <laughs> into yeah, the yeah. new decade as I was coming of age to, like, go to high school parties and experience wearing these outlandish outfits and, and, and <laughs> creating my own little Duran world. But the nineties weren't having it. You know, we, yeah. we ushered in a whole backlash of Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. I didn't take kindly to that stuff right off the bat. So what I did is everything that I missed in the eighties while I was playing top 40 stuff, I started to get into I'm like, okay, who is this Motley Crue band that I kind of missed out on? Yeah. And who, White Snake and all the bands that you mentioned just a second ago, I, I started kind of taking note of that stuff. And I was a little late, but I got into it. And that's the kind of band that I was in in high school. I was, uh, you know, 14, 15 year old kid playing with guys in their mid twenties. And they're, they're taking me to the, you know, really seedy parts of Detroit and I'm playing bars and clubs <laughs> at a very, very, you know, influential, you know, preteen to teen, early teen, you know, years of my life playing in, and, you know, at Harpo's and, and IROX and, in uh, in downtown Detroit, some scary, scary parts of town. Yeah, man. Well, you mentioned somebody in there and I, I'm just, I, I'm going to, I apologize in advance, but I, I want to say this. Bill Gibson from Huey Lewis in the News is one of, oh, yeah. one of the most stone cold badass drummers of all time. And I have attempted to get in touch with him because I would love to have him on this show. But oh, that would be great. That he, would be so awesome. He's another one of those pocket guys. That yeah. Does just what the song needs. Well, and I mean, how many platinum records does he have hanging on the wall? How many Grammys? He's got how many, a few. Uh, he, he, <laughs> he's got a few. I, I, I mean, you know, he's he's up there in terms of you know successful recordings, but he keeps a very low profile these days. Um, so if anybody they listening, they got a new record out, you know. Yeah, they do, um, and it's really good. It's really, really good. I've heard a couple of tracks off it. But if anybody out there knows Bill Gibson and knows how to get us in touch, there, there's a free T-shirt and a pair of sticks in it for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to work on that for you then. I know they're in the Bay Area, right? They're, yeah, they are. out of San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but gosh, yeah, it seems like he'd be, especially in this day and age where everybody's a little bit more accessible than they used to be, you know, Um I'm sure you've tried different different ways and 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 such online, but uh, hell, I I wanted I want a t-shirt, so I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna work on that for you. I'm gonna get his information and find out right. and get him on the show. <laughs> Good enough. Well, so at what point, Mark? You know, doing the gigs in Detroit, and I'm hey man, I'm familiar with IROX. I remember that place. Um, oh wow, nice. Yeah, yeah. so um, they always paid pretty decent, actually. Um, but at what point, you know, how old were you when you decided to make the move to LA and I don't want to skip anything here, but you know, did you, did you go to college, uh, and major in music or did you just kind of say, no, 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 I'm just going to move to LA and make a go of it. Boy, you know, that's skipping a lot because I moved to LA when I was already classified in the pop world as pretty ancient. I was 35. Oh, okay. I and gotcha. so it wasn't until 2012 that I moved 
to, uh, to, uh, Los Angeles. So, you know, I went to a, a smaller high school in my small town in small town, Michigan. And, you know, I was, you know, I was slated to go to Berkeley and then, you know, I got cold feet. I, I, I'm, I'll be totally honest. I, I just didn't have the confidence yeah. in myself or my ability socially, even let alone playing to go to a big city like Boston. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence in my reading ability. Um, I just, I still wasn't even comfortable in my own skin as not a lot of us are at, at 18. So I kind of freaked out and, and didn't go that route. And I regretted that decision for a lot of years. And then, um, you know, I was running a guitar center in Canton, Michigan, uh, for, you know, I was the store operations manager for a guitar center for about eight years, um, before playing music full time. Um, and there were a lot of Berkeley graduates that, that were coming through there, whether on, on the customer level or working there. And, um, I guess, you know, getting the calls from other drummers that were Berkeley grads saying, Hey man, if you, if you need a sub, just let me know. And I'm playing bars and clubs and nothing special at that point. So that's when the writing was on the wall to me that I didn't make it like, I would have loved to go to Berkeley. Don't get me wrong. And their curriculum, I'm sure it's just amazing, but it doesn't guarantee. I had it in my head that, Oh man, if I would have went to Berkeley, I'd be playing these amazing gigs automatically. That's yeah. not a guarantee. Right. You know, it's still, this industry is a big struggle. This is like, you, this is like, you got to play the lottery to win the lottery. That's what we're doing here in this industry. Yeah. You got to play to win. And your definition of success has to kind of, you know, you, it's got to be in check. I think that you have to kind of, um, be realistic in, in what your expectations are for what you consider a good career. Now I might not be a household name, but in some people's book, I've been playing music full time since 2005. That's a level of success right there that not a lot of people can enjoy. Oh, absolutely. I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for that. You know, I did have, uh, when I moved to LA in 2012, I did, it took me about three months to realize that, Oh man, this is a lot harder to get the gig than I kind of anticipated. I knew it was going to be hard, but I'm like, wow, I'm blowing through mad money here. It's yeah. like one of the most expensive <laughs> cities in the country. Um, you know, I didn't have these delusions of grandeur that I was just going to come out here and land the gig. But I thought that I thought that I had at least a year's worth of finances saved up to uh, to accommodate such a, you know, just like pounding the pavement, so to speak. But it was three months of just like if you go to all the let's let's call it the open jams that happen throughout the week in LA. Yeah. That's every night there's an open jam somewhere. Yeah. You know, Monday it's it's here, Tuesday you go through the list of the open jams that happen. Now the weekends usually the guys are, are you know, people are gigging. So the open jams are throughout the week, less so through the weekend, but by Sunday Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, even sometimes Thursday, there's open jams somewhere. And if you want to get yourself integrated into the scene, you got to hit all those, which means by the time you get there and park and get in the door, you're already $50 in. 
You know, you haven't even gotten the drink yet and sat down to, to listen to what these people are playing. And you're, you know, so do the math. Yeah. I'm like, okay. The moral to the story here is I had to get a job. So from 2005 to 2012, I was playing full time in the Midwest and doing some national stuff. Now, when I moved to LA, three months of blowing through some mad cash, I, I had to get a job. And what I really wanted to, to not do was get a job, you know, whether it was bartending, waiting tables. I had never done that anyway. I was terrible at it. So I lost that job pretty early on. I wanted to get a job in the industry somehow to see it, whether it was behind the scenes, something. So I started working as the drum department manager of a place called Center Staging. Oh, um, yeah, sure. Which is one of, the, yeah, one of the premier rehearsal studios and backline companies in Los Angeles. You really couldn't ask for more of a godsend of a job uh, as, as somebody that's trying to integrate themselves into the scene, not only locally, but just like I wanted, I didn't come out here to play local gigs. I came out here to get the auditions to play the, the nationwide, worldwide, like the real stuff, you know. Uh, I had played Brown Eyed Girl enough times at weddings to, I didn't want to do that anymore. You know what I mean? Well, working that job, you, you just meet everybody because they're all in there rehearsing and, and, you know, getting their, you know, consumables to take on the road. It's, uh, I mean, that's a great gig. You have A&R departments for Roland and Vickford and Zildjian and uh, PRS guitars. And I mean, all the offices are there. There's 3,200 square foot rooms available for the likes of the Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney to rehearse at, which so happened to be the most amazing six weeks of my life, by the way, when those two operations were there at the same time. And I got to, uh, you know, I, I got to my job. I, I didn't get to set up anyone, anyone here because those guys are all like they've got their crew, you know, but um when um, when the drum tech for the Stones came into my office and said, hey, I need you to find all these Speed Kings, 1960-whatever Speed King drum details, you know, that you can find for the bottom of the road, and that's all that Charlie plays. He will not play anything else. Um, you know, that was a pretty cool gig. Yeah. You know, like, yes, sir, I'm on it. And I had to find all these pedals. Uh, for Charlie Watts, and I did get to go into the room and, and check out his gear, and you know, you're you're literally brushing elbows with you know, um, you know, walking down the hall and and oh look it's Roger Daltrey and <laughs> oh look it's you know Abe Laborio Jr. and he remembered me from Bam, so he invites me into the room to check out the gear and meet the rest of the band, and that was you know I spent a year and a half working that job, and it was really really awesome. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Until it wasn't, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. All jobs, they're awesome until they're not. Um, well, well, it was it continued to be an awesome job, but I started getting gigs, and I had to make a decision at that point, right? Because I couldn't keep asking for time off to travel. You know, I was going to Mexico City. I was going back to Michigan a lot because two, uh, you know, two of the artists that I work with primarily are based out of Michigan. Still, you know, I'm still working with those artists. And, um, yeah, so I had to make a decision whether or not to, to stay at the day job and Google over everybody else's gear and tours and, and stuff like that, or, or go out and, and make a go of it myself. So. 
Well, yeah. And I mean, obviously you made the right decision. Um, and I know that you do a lot of, you know, TV and, and movie work and commercials and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Were, were those things coming at you at that time or did those types of, you know, what shall we call it? Supplementary work. Was that stuff coming after, you know, your, your two main artists, you know, after those things kind of broke open, what was the chronology of that? Well, the TV and film stuff was totally accidental. Um, and the more I talked to audio engineers in the field of film and television, the more I realized that nobody really starts in film and television audio. They start mixing records and they're in the music side of things until, the film and TV comes, comes knocking somehow, some way. Right. Um, I was, uh, I had moved up. Well, basically, you know, and, and we talked a little bit about this during the, you know, when we were off air about, you know, what, what is the, what's the deal with, with the, the, the mixing side and drummers. I think that there is a correlation between, you know, I, I think that drummers become audio guys because of our fascination with how drums end up sounding on a record. Yeah. How in the world you get a kick and snare drum to sound the way that the final product sounds with the way these things sound in the room, you know, at the beginning of the project, you know what I mean? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Am I describing that correctly, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, so drums are a fickle instrument to record. Yes. There's a lot of challenges and there are so many people you know, that, that don't have that recording experience, um, of hearing the first playback, you, you know what I'm saying? And your drums, oh my gosh, yeah. your drums sound like crap. Um, <laughs> and you go, man, that, that doesn't sound very good. And, and the engineer invariably always says, don't worry. It's don't worry. It's going to sound great. And, you know, people that say microphones don't lie. I go, well, you've never been in a studio longer than three minutes because microphones lie all day long, brother. They can, they can, and they will. Yeah. And, and the, uh, you know, so the, and on that note, you, you get <laughs> the new challenges of today's industry with these, like I said early on during this interview, of my online sessions increasing right now with all the people at home in their home studios wanting, you know, live drums on their recording. So they're sending me their recording. I'm tracking drums in my studio. And then I'm sending them the raw stems. Now, where do you think I'm going with this conversation? What do you think happens at that point when somebody inexperienced gets raw drum sound to work with on their recording? They go, this doesn't they freak sound out. very, yeah, this, this sounds yeah, they, horrible. They freak out because it's not the finished pro it's not the finished product. It's not been, been compressed or EQ'd or, you know, not that those things are going to save. I mean, it's still got to sound good at the source, right? You still got to, get a good sounding room. You got to have good sounding gear. You got to play it properly. There's a lot of entities that goes in that go into recording a good drum sound. And, uh, but there's a lot in post as well. So I think that a lot of drummers go into audio work because of the fascination in that very thing of like, how in the world do you get your drums to sound good? Yeah. And, like most of the time, you're the first one in. You're the first one tracking. You have maybe, 
you know, and that's not always the case these days, especially with people, you know, the programs to just get like, I'm, I'm a logic guy. You know, I, I like Pro Tools just fine, but I've been running logic since 1999 or something like that. My workflow is really fast on it. So I do most of my production in logic and just the drummer program in logic just to get ideas down is pretty damn amazing. You know, it's pretty like, wow, I can get, I can, I can adjust the feel and I can make all these parameter adjustments to make it really feel great while I'm stacking, you know, guitars and, and keyboards and vocals and stuff. And the maybe track drums last. So it's not always the case, but back in the, back in the late eighties and early nineties, when I was tracking drums in the studio for people, um, it was, uh, you're first, you have a click track and maybe a scratch vocal and a, a guitar, you know, and you're the first, you're the first person in to, to track your part. So where I'm going with this is that your, your part is done and you get to sit next to the engineer for the rest of the project, yep. which is beautiful because that's when you really learn. You can take all the audio classes that you want and those are important because there's a lot of physics and there's a lot of science involved, but nothing will, will, uh, replace the actual hands-on, or even if you're not even hands-on, just eyes on the engineer of what they're doing during the tracking process. And if you're lucky enough to have them allow you in the room while they're mixing, yeah. sitting there watching that process. I tell you what, when I moved to LA, my drumming career uh, was in one place, and my audio career kind of, I wouldn't say my career, but my chops increased tenfold because of the engineers that I was meeting. And I was producing a record um, uh, by a band called Facing Arrows. And don't try looking. Well, you can look it up. There's, there's still content online. But this record sadly never came out that we spent a year and a half making. And that story is probably, you know, a, a lot of people's story when they come out here. Is that they work on something for a long period of time and it gets shelved or, you know, uh, whatever the case is, but that was, um, it, what a, what an experience because I produced this record with these guys and they wanted this very cold play U2 ish kind of sound. And I'm like, cool. So we went for that. And, you know, there's, there's three out of the four of us were really good mix engineers in our own right. So I'm like, I think the best thing for us to do is have somebody else mix this thing besides us because we'll just be like too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. But we're in LA. So why don't we try to find a guy that worked with you two or Coldplay? And that led me to a guy by the name of Mark DeSisto, who I, who worked on, I believe it was the rattle and hum album and maybe some sessions for Octoon baby, but either way, he was a guy in the control room working with you two at some point in his career. So we got that guy. That's the nice thing about living in LA. You just can find these people right. and work with them if they're available, you know? And, and, um, I got to sit elbow to elbow with this guy and I still use so many of his techniques. I owe him a lot of money. <laughs> he knew, yeah. If he knew how much stuff that I stole from him in that, that process, you know, but that's what we do. We, we, you know, if you're a sponge for influence, that's how you, that's how you learn. And, um, yeah, so the film and going back to your original question, the film and TV stuff didn't happen until a little bit later, and uh, it just 
started out with a friend of mine that had a, a, a television show on PBS called Startup. Um, and uh, it, it profiles, you know, um, small businesses, people that started their own businesses, quit their day jobs, and, and took the plunge into entrepreneurship. And he asked me what I thought of the first season, and I told him, it's great, but your audio sounds like crap. And he said, okay, <laughs> smartass, you want to mix the show? And I said, I don't know anything about TV broadcast specs or any of that stuff. Uh, but at the same time, I was very young in my career in LA and very vulnerable at that point and, uh, and said, okay, I'll do it. And then I, I watched a lot of YouTube videos and read a lot of books on broadcast specs. Yeah. And, um, now we're, we're going into our eighth season to that television show. And from that, I got HG TV shows or HG TV, uh, television shows and, uh, one on DIY network. Um, you know, some of them one off, some of them series and then, you know, commercial stuff and then short films come up after that. And then a feature film that I did last year called to, to Helen Gone, uh, which is a very cool movie. Um, and then, you know, just, it just, you know, kind of spirals from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a, an awesome thing to have that, you know, I'm no engineer, trust me, but you know, when I started this (laughs) podcast, I had to learn a whole lot of stuff, you know, your podcast sounds great, man. I got to tell you, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately. You, and I think I said, sent this, uh, in the email when we first spoke that you're, you're number one, you have a great voice for radio. And I have a face um, for radio and, and too. <laughs> you have a face for radio. <laughs> that I haven't seen, so I'll have to take your word for it, but I'm, I'm sure you're being modest. Um, but yeah, your podcast sounds really good, and I wish people would take more pride in that side of, of, of things, you know. Sound is important, you know, and you have more online content than ever these days. And when people don't consider sound is important, yeah. Um, that saddens me. Well, well, I mean, yes, I agree. But, you know, there's a, a pretty low hurdle for podcasting. I mean, if you, you right. know, if you have a USB microphone and, and you know, a, a free Internet program, you can record a podcast. I'm lucky in that I had all this outboard gear that I was using to record drums, you know, compressors and limiters oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and EQ and things like that. So, uh, but there was a learning curve, no doubt about it. Um, you know, sure. I'm no engineer, but I love to play one, you know, when I'm in the studio, <laughs> I, I, you know, well, you're doing well with, with the dialogue stuff, man, you're making yourself and your guests sound good. I mean, well, and that's what pe- people got to you know, it, here's the thing, the, my biggest beef about the podcast is that maybe they do have great content, but if it sounds terrible, you're going to lose people. Yeah. You're going to lose people. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I, I read every email that I get, you know, and I put the email address that can in, be dangerous. In, in every show. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. And, you know, I, <laughs> I got one, you know, a couple of weeks ago that said, Hey, you got to let your guests speak. You talk too much. And I was like, well, you know, Mm. somebody has to host. I mean, I, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Wow. Yeah. Somebody's got to steer the ship, man. You just can't let us go. You know? Well, you know, so, I mean, I try to abide by the 80, 20 rule. If I'm, if I get 20% of the audio, that's plenty. 
You know what I mean? If I if I'm getting more right. than 20% of the conversation, it's too much. But you know, I it's I I envy guys like you that are incredible drummers. Then you can go produce a record. You can do all of the audio engineering for a short film or a TV series. It's pretty cool. And you've essentially taken the reins of your of your own destiny and, and said, look, I don't have to be just a side man in a band. I can be my own guy. I can drum as much as I want. You've got those chops. But like right now, when there's no tour to do or, you know, no record to make, I, you know, I'm an engineer. I can go in the studio. I've got plenty of work. I got plenty to do. And, you know, I, I envy you. I think that's great that you were able to do that um, and that you're making a living doing this. Um, and, and, you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time. We've we've had a great conversation, but we haven't even touched on your current projects because this is important man um you know the the josie pace record is going to be out later this year is that right you know it's slated for spring but now we've got to kind of (laughs) yeah right we've got to reevaluate a lot of different things because uh, of this you know just we don't know how long this pandemic is going to go on for but yes um and and here's the thing with the Josie Pace project. There is plenty of content for you to listen to and view. If you go to JosiePace.com, J-O-S-I-E-P-A-C-E, Josie Pace, just like it sounds, um, we have, what is it, seven fully produced videos, 17 singles that we re- released, whether it's remix or, or, you know, just straight up original tunes. Um, Ken Roberts and I have been working together producing music for 20 plus years. And we found, he found this girl, Josie Pace, about four years ago, uh, in Michigan. And uh, she's a force to be reckoned with. She's a very, very talented singer songwriter. And, uh, she writes all these songs on acoustic and we, we go in and, and just, uh, we, we make them the, the synth driven electronic nine inch nailsy kind of things that they come out like at the, by the end of it. Um, and Ken and I were talking for years about like, okay, are CDs still relevant? And the answer is yes, because we are now getting asked like, Hey, when is your record coming out on CD? Um, but prior to that, we decided to go a different route with how we were going to release music. And instead of barricading ourselves into a studio for, you know, uh, a, a year or however long it takes to, to, you know, produce 12 quality songs that are going to go on the record. In today's age of, of everything's got to be fast and everything's got to be out and in your face constantly because of the lack of attention span of people, you know, today with, with all the social media. Every time we finished writing a song and, and fully producing it in the studio, it went out. So we, that's why we have all this material out. Over the course of three and a half years, we were able, able to, to get all these tunes uh, produced, mixed, and out. And, you know, some of those are going to be on the record. Some of them are going to be new and unheard, um, uh, you know, previously unreleased. And... Uh, and then, you know, and then we're going to go from there in terms of how we're going to promote it on the live front. We're going to see how things go with uh, with what's going on in the world. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that stuff is incredible in and of its own right. Um, you know, but I think the, the gig that you do that folks are going to, that's probably going to resonate the most with folks is, um, uh, late, right? I mean, you, you've been playing 16 years. Am I reading that right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that is correct. I started with him in, in 2004 playing a small, uh, you know, martini lounge, uh, below a restaurant in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right on U of M's campus there. Um, and, uh, yeah, from there it was, you know, very grassroots, you know, just, um, you know, playing weddings, playing bars, playing clubs, having our residency, if you will, at that good night, Gracie's martini lounge. Um, and then I, you know, I moved to LA, uh, in 2012, but I was still, you know, flying back, uh, for, for Midwest gigs with him. Uh, and then he went on the voice, uh, season 10, which was 2016 (laughs) and did really, really well and was a finalist on the show. And, uh, that kind of catapulted us into more of a national forum. So we toured from, New York City to Seattle and everywhere in between and, uh, and been doing it ever since. So, and he's on the opposite, well, I wouldn't say opposite end of the spectrum. It's all rock and roll at the end of the day, right? But yeah, Josie is very synth driven, you know, um, nine inch nails type rock where Lace is, uh, roots rock, blues driven guitar player, singer, and, uh, more of an Almond Brothers approach. Yeah. I would say. Well, and, yeah. and, and it's, it's all just, you know, badassery of the, of the highest <laughs> order. It really is. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. So, I mean, obviously you're, you're staying really busy, um, you know, and, and a couple of other things that I want to point out to folks, you know, you, you said, yeah, I may not be a household name, but you know, y- your name is attached to some things that are household names, you know, like Star Wars, The Last Jedi, <laughs> Star, oh, yeah, Star know, Trek those, Beyond, those are- <laughs> Jumanji. I mean, so I, obviously you've got your hand, hands, plural, in a lot of different <laughs> things, man. So, uh, you know, kudos to I think that's not a necessity. And I think that's, you know, if there's any advice that I can give to people is diversify your portfolio. Yeah. Um, because you really have to, uh, you know, being just one thing anymore is really, really hard. Now, do I want to be just a drummer? Yes. That is the passion. That is, if I could just be... You know, the, if I could just have the world the way it used to be in the 1970s and 80s where you were just rock star and that's all you had to do, that would be <laughs> wonderful. I would love that. Now, do I have that? I have a lot of passion for the audio side of things, too. If I didn't, I wouldn't do it. But that's uh, and, and it just, you know, it happens in the weirdest way, falling into the TV and film stuff, you know. Alloy Tracks is the company that I work with uh, for the trailer stuff that you had mentioned. Now, you have to remember, I want to make sure that people realize that, you know, because you mentioned the Blade Runner and the Star Wars, you know, Left Jedi, I think. That's the trailers. Yeah. I, I contributed sound for the trailers. Now, the movies are different. Like, the actual films are a different thing. And, hey, that's the next, you know, aspiration uh, that, that I have is to, to get more of that stuff. But, um, I'm going to have to, know, I'm going to have thing. to introduce you to Bernie Dressel because I think Bernie does, okay. I, I think Bernie does every movie made now. 
I honestly, I mean, I like he, he does uh, just hours and hours a day of movie soundtracks and he's amazing at it. Um, you know, so I, I'll have to get you two guys hooked up for sure. Yeah, please do. And that's, that's how it happens. You know, everybody, that's the other piece of advice, you know, take these stories that people have, uh, with a grain of salt, because you line up 10 different or a dozen different musicians and say, how did you break into the industry? You're going to get 12 very, very different answers. You know, everybody's got a different story and it usually comes down to how you interact with other people and the connections that you make and your personal energy, you know, your energy has got to be really positive and really good to begin with, because it's not all about how great you are at your instrument. It can be, you know, do I want to share a tour bus with this guy for two months? Man, you, so. you really have listened you know to I mean? this show before because, <laughs> you know, the the line has been said on this show. Um, you know, I've been doing this for uh, over two years now, and I can't if I had a dollar for every time I said it's not the 90 minutes on stage. It's the other 22 and oh, a half man. hours trapped in a that's a lot longer yeah. portion of time. Right. I mean, yeah. you've got to live with these people on the road. You know, if you're lucky enough to get the tour bus or the plane, that's one thing. But, you know, <laughs> you're in a van. You know, sprinter van, crappy van, you know, uh, whatever it is, it, it's, it's a hard thing to do being in the same vehicle for, for hours and hours on end. And it's broken up bands. I've been in situations <laughs> where I was in a van going to, you know, from Detroit to New York. And by the end of that trip, the bass player was fired, you know, and he was <laughs> yeah. out, you know, it's like, wow, that didn't have anything to do with what went on on stage. Yeah. It could, it could nothing be to do. this guy's amazing bass player and he got fired because you know, both these guys couldn't keep their mouth shut, you know, yeah. it's like, well, I mean, yeah, I, it can happen. I've heard stories. I've got friends that have lost gigs because they, you know, chewed their food too loudly. I mean, it's, it can, <laughs> it, it can yeah. be something that stupid, you know, or, you know, I only, I only brought four pairs of socks for the whole tour and you know, I mean, it's, Oh man. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, Mark, it goes without saying, man, this has been a, a totally cool hang. I've enjoyed it. We got to have you back to kind of do part yeah, two. I'd love but, to be back. That'd be great. Because, you know, I mean, I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but so much good content here and, and so much good advice and, and, um, you know, insight that you've shared with everybody. I really do appreciate it. Um, do me one favor though, tell everybody where they can catch up with you, you know, website, socials, all that good stuff. If anybody wants a lesson or needs drum tracks or just wants to reach out and say, Hey. Yeah. The, the centralized location would obviously be my website. It's uh markdamian.com and Damien, well, Mark is spelled with a K and Damien is D-A-M-I-A-N. And uh, that'll lead you to my Facebook, my Instagram, my YouTube page, and, um, you know, everything else. Josie Pace, you'll find her through there. You'll find Lace, um, Lace Health Shoddy. And, uh, and all the, you know, film trailer work and the movies that I work on and the television shows that I work on and the other music that I produce and, and co-write and all that good stuff. It's all at markdamian.com. Awesome. Well, we're going to send some folks your way for sure. Uh, again, you're welcome here anytime. Let's, 
let's go ahead and make plans to uh, to celebrate the end of the end of the world. Uh, <laughs> I like it. Whenever that comes. So when the ending of the world ends, we'll have you back on the show. Maybe we can hopefully you'll be passing through this way and we can do this live and in person. We'll, we'll do a part you two. You are in Kentucky, correct? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, you know what? I, I hope to make it that and in, in, to that area with Lace, yeah. because I think he would kill down there. We haven't haven't really hit that market as much as we should. Yeah, well, It'd I mean, be great to meet you in person. Yeah, for sure, man. And you know, if you guys are starting in Detroit, just hit I seventy five South, and and it runs <laughs> it runs right through my hometown, right so, down the center. Yeah, right down the center. You guys need to get down to Nashville anyway. This would be a good halfway Absolutely. point. This would be a good halfway point for you. So we'll make that happen. But Mark, again, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. We'll do it again real soon, man. Thank you, Jamie. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. We'll talk to you real soon, okay? All right. Take care, man. All right. See ya. All right, guys and girls, that is going to wrap up episode 98 of The Drum Shuffle. Many thanks to Mark Damien for taking time out of his schedule to come on the show and tell us a little bit more about his career and the happenings he has going on. Uh, It's always great to catch up with uh, seasoned pros like Mark around here. Hey, thank you guys so, so much for tuning in. We simply cannot do this show without each and every one of you doing so week in and week out. We truly do appreciate it. As we do each and every week, please make sure you hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen into the drum shuffle. Also, it helps us tremendously if you will leave us a rating, a thumbs up, a review, type just a couple of sentences uh, about the show. It really helps us uh, to get a little bit more recognition. It makes it easier for folks to find us. We do appreciate that. As always, we respond to every single email we receive here. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is where you can write to us. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And of course, you can find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. We have some fantastic episodes coming up that you are not going to want to miss. Next week, I am going to be joined by the great Patrick Musingo. Uh, Pat has spent the last, oh gosh, dare I say, 35 years in the band Junkyard, one of my all-time faves. Um, and he is also a Los Cabos artist. So this one has been long overdue and I'm really looking forward to bringing that interview to you next week. So I hope everybody is staying safe, staying healthy. I hope you're getting lots and lots of good woodshed time in. Um, I hope you are catching up on all the amazing, uh, material that's coming out from all of these drummers. Everybody is posting content right now as they're not able to tour. I hope you are soaking in as much of that as you possibly can. I know that I certainly am, and it's just wonderful to see how our community is coming together to help one another. Be good to one another out there. Keep yourself safe. Keep yourself healthy. And until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>